Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. So if you've got someone in your life that they want to now try and weigh in and give their opinion on your qualification, your worthiness, your ability, if they are themselves not actually credible, be free. It's a thing that nobody cares about. But I'll tell you what, for the five pages of my presentation, it was the greatest part of my entire quarantine. You're going to be sitting in quarantine for longer than 30 days. And if you, in processing anxiety and stress, decide for the next 30 days that I'll drink a little more than I ought to because it's going to help knock the rough edges off of this quarantine, when we come out of this, you will have established that alcohol or pills or whatever is the way that you handle stress and stress will still exist when we get out of this. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Dave Hollis. Dave is the other half of the dynamic duo team with his wife, Rachel Hollis, from the runaway bestseller book, Girl, Wash Your Face. In this episode, we took a deep dive into Dave's new book and into the radical transformation that he's made in his personal life over the last few years and what he had to do in order to get it done. So look, if you're an entrepreneur and you're asking yourself these sort of like existential questions, like, is this all there is? This interview is going to be a game changer for you. There was so many nuggets in this interview. I freaking loved it. I took three pages of notes. Uh, if you want to work with me personally as a coaching client, shoot me a message. Uh, probably the easiest way to do it is on Instagram. Go to at Rob Murgatroyd and we'll set up a free discovery call to see if I am a good fit for you and if I can help you through this corona crisis that we're all living in. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging and fantastic conversation that I had with Dave Hollis. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. You know what, man? I am super excited to have you on the show. Your name has come up a bazillion freaking times in some super credible circles. And I decided to give your book uh, a shot, you know? And I did. And I was truly blown away by your level of candor, vulnerability. And frankly, uh, I'm a little jealous of your ability to tell a story. I mean, you had me sucked in. Really, really nice work. Oh, thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. It's it's crazy. I uh, 
did not think myself someone who was going to write a book, number one. I got the idea of writing the book from my wife, who in fact has written many books, but the idea to write it was born out of the panic of having read a first draft version of a book that became very popular for her called Girl, Wash Your Face, when I saw how transparent and vulnerable and honest she decided she would be in telling everything. And I did everything I could to try and convince her to not actually release the book, which thank God she didn't listen to me four million copies later. But I was witness to the way that people seeing themselves in her stories afforded them an opportunity to feel less alone, one, but two, in some of the tools she was representing that she used in making some progress in her own life, it afforded them a chance to make progress in their own. And so I thought, well, I'm not like her at all. I'm not wired like her the way that she has motivation or mindset already clicking. But man, I got some stories of having made some mistakes myself. If I'm going to do it, I probably ought to do it the way she did and just own all of my junk. Uh, because man, the struggle is so universal. And, uh, and here we are. Well, we're going to get into some of that today. And I want to, I think a good jumping off place would be to take you back to Southern California in the 70s. Sounds like a Sunkiss commercial I'm about to set up, but <laughs> you, you had some, uh, some great parents. Uh, they raised you in the church. And um, I think we all know that there are a lot of super positive things uh, that come from a family like that. But you also shared um, some things about your upbringing that may have been... I don't know, maybe myopic in teaching you about the world. Could you maybe give us a few examples of something that may have, that maybe you've changed your mind about now as an adult than perhaps when you were raised? Yeah. I mean, you have to start by appreciating that we are all living our lives against the backdrop of stories that we believe. And um, those stories, our truths, are the things that usually were afforded to us because of storytellers. And many, many times, those storytellers end up being our parents, our family of origin, that in their attempt to turn us into great humans that would grow up to become adults, um, told us the way the world worked. And, and I had great humans as parents. They are good people today. They were good people then. And the way that they raised me was a way that informed how I thought a man shows up in this world, how a husband loves and, and shows up to his wife, how faith plays a role in how you do in kind of anything and everything. But in that, uh, I have had to, as an adult, and you, listener, will have to, as a human being who is interested in pursuing a life that aligns with your personal values, ask questions about who has story told in your life and if their credibility on the topic is something that still has relevancy in 2020 as much as it may have in 1978. And so for me, growing up, as you point out, in the church, growing up in what I would argue is a more traditional kind of a family where my dad worked and my mom stayed home and did the hardest thing in the world, raising four children, um, I came into being married. I came into my relationship with personal development. I came into my relationship with what it meant to be a provider through the lens of how it had been modeled for me by my parents. Again, back to where I started, there are stories that have been told to you. And if you are believing them without questioning their credibility or relevance in this day and age, um, you ought to, because they could in fact be limiting beliefs if you don't. 
Yeah, there's two things that come to mind. The first one is you pointed out something very interesting to me, and that is their credibility on the topic, not whether they are credible people, because your parents clearly, or anybody's parents are credible people, but do they have credibility on that particular topic? And I think that distinction is really important. And I think I remember, I read so many different books, but I think that there was a story in there where one of the things that you challenged was sort of you know, the idea of someone who had um, Muslim beliefs and you were, was that your book? I think it was. Yeah. 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 Where well, there was a part of you that was like, I have all these preconceived mo- notions about how I should feel about this. But the reality is, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting it from a grandma or something that has no reference or no credibility in that space. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, one of the one of the chapters. The book is written uh, in twenty lies that I once believed that kept me from being my very best self. Got in my own way, and one of the lies was that I know what you've been through. And in that chapter, I talk about this instance of me getting ready to travel to Europe, and my very well intentioned uh, grandmother represents that she, in wanting to keep me safe and prepare me, uh, wants to you know make sure that I am careful around Muslim people. And the the idea at the time that like, oh, this is a thing that I ought to actually take your advice for would, would have required that she had any experience at all in her entire life with someone who actually practiced the faith. And she had none. And so, well, at the time, I didn't really appreciate that distinction. I now, as an adult who has tried so hard to spend as much time with people who believe differently, who love differently, who uh, think differently or vote differently, just so that I can inch closer to understanding, I can appreciate now that, man, in the absence of any credibility whatsoever, that warning was not one that was worth listening to. And so if you've got someone in your life who, as you have ambition, as you have a calling, as you have an idea that they want to now try and like weigh in and give their opinion on your qualification, your worthiness, your ability, if they are themselves not actually credible in the thing that you are interested in going to pursue, be free. I had someone for the longest time that was reinforcing a a story around my inability as a person who's six feet, four inches tall of my ability to run. And I just accepted their story as told through the lens of their fear and not the truth of my experience as, as the truth. And I didn't run for 36 years, never ran because I'd just been told tall people can't run. It's their back or their knees or their hips. And then one day I started running. And running for me has become just one of the greatest parts of my life from a coping mechanism standpoint, a mental health standpoint. I, like, it, there's some church on the road for me. And I have run 1,000 miles in the last year. I am a voracious runner. But it took me challenging the credibility of the source of someone who was telling me that tall people can't run to realize that they had no business telling me what I could or couldn't do when it came to putting shoes on and getting on the road. Which is which now has led you into training for a uh, not an ultra but an Ironman. That's right. Yeah. As a Southern California guy now living in Austin, Texas, and making that sort of like. LA to Austin mass exodus. They should set up a railroad because everybody's just leaving, going to Austin. I guess the first question is, why did you do it? And the second question is, are you glad that you did it? And maybe the third is, do you miss LA? Well, 
It is singularly the, I, I don't want to say singularly, it is one of the greatest decisions that we have ever made as a family. So I, I'll answer your second question first. Uh, we are so grateful for having made the decision to move. The, the, the answer to the first question is a longer one. So if you'll indulge just for a second, like sure. I was, I was working inside of entertainment for a little more than 20 years worth of time. I, at the time where we were deciding to move, uh, had been working at the Walt Disney Company. I worked there for 17 years at the end of my entertainment run. And the last seven of those years, I was working as the head of sales inside of the movie studio, um, selling the Marvel, Lucas, Pixar, and Disney films to movie theaters around the world. So I had, uh, I had a great job. I had a job where for the first few years of that last seven, it was the most unbelievable job in terms of it being um, way beyond the capacity of what I uh, had in terms of my own competency. I had people working for me that had so much more experience. I, in being the least experienced person in most conversations was learning uh, in a drinking out of a fire hydrant kind of way for, you know, for three years, for four years. And then as the learning curve slowed and the strength of the team was so much there every single day, the executive team was so strong and man, the intellectual property just kept getting better and better. Uh, I didn't have to work as hard to get the recognition as this head of sales. And there was in that dissonance, uh, an emptiness inside of me that was disconnected from the optics of the job that most people, um, and certainly even myself, that I, I had dreamt of having this job for most of my career. And then um, I found a place where, man, in the absence of it being as challenging for me because of how great the variables around me were, um, I just, I was struggling. And in that struggle, uh, it is contrast by my wife who is thriving. She has at the time been an entrepreneur herself for years and years and years and has created in her company something that's a, at a tipping point where she as the creative visionary is in, in real time needing someone to come alongside her as an operator integrator to help take the, the what, she is the what person, uh, and I am a how person, right? Like, how do you take the things that she has big dreams for and bring them to people at scale across platforms in a way that meets their needs and, and delivers maximum value? And so we start having a conversation about doing this work together. And because I'd worked in entertainment for so long, because it was a dream of ours to be able to scale a business inside of an environment where the cost of living might be a little bit different for our employees, where there might be some benefit to our company from a tax perspective, um, and just even the, the, the acknowledgement of if I'm going to leave a job that few would, if I'm going to leave what I know for what I need, um, I probably need to get away from this world that I've lived inside of in entertainment and Hollywood so that I'm not distracted by or looking in the rearview mirror of what I've left behind so that I can go pursue what we're now going to go do together. So we moved to Austin, Texas in uh, June of 2018, and it has been another drinking out of a fire hydrant kind of experience. Working with your partner for the first time, that is a wily thing. Scaling a business has been uh, amazing and super disorienting in that we, we got out here with four people. We have 64 people now. It's been a small window of time to have as many people join the team as have joined. And the the identity stuff that I've gone through or the um, just the difference in conglomerate leadership 
and small business entrepreneurial leadership has been super disorienting in a way that uh, has man triggered me all just a ton, but that also has helped me grow on an every hour basis because um, really the frequency of how we are making mistakes and learning from those mistakes is, is something that's happening at a clip that just wasn't happening when I was at Disney. So we love it. Do we, do I miss LA was the third part of the question. Yep. I, uh, I'll, I'll tell you it, we still get back to LA every once in a while. And um, as much as there are some people that we miss, it's interesting. I expected that we would miss being in LA or living in LA because we both lived there for most of our adult lives and we do not miss it because in large part, we have just fallen completely in love with where we live in Texas. Amazing. Amazing. And the taxes are not so bad. So that's, no, uh, <laughs> that's a big help. That's a big help. Can you place us around the time uh, you mentioned earlier around, around uh, I don't remember the year, but the time when your wife's book, um, Girl, Wash Your Face came out and you were dealing with a lot of stress and challenges um, and you were sort of in a place where you were playing video games and drinking too much. And uh, I think a lot of people, especially now, um, when I look at the, uh, the grocery stores and I see you know, the boxes that they're carrying out, there's a lot of bottles of wine in it. There's a lot of vodka in it. And there's you know, that end of the day um, wind down where people are, are you know, as a rule now, they're drinking more. And for you, you know, it, wasn't, it wasn't just you know, a glass uh, to calm your nerves. You know, it was, uh, you, you taught me a new word, a handle. A vodka. I didn't That's know what real. that was. Yeah. You taught me a new word, right? So how did you go from drinking at that level with that sort of hangover, you know, in the in the lining up lining up to drop your kids off and feeling the cloud from the night before to to just stopping and now being, I think, either either on or past your first year of sobriety. Yeah. So it's well, number one. Coping mechanisms exist, whether it is alcohol or food or sex or anything, it don't matter. There are coping mechanisms that every single one of us as human beings have, and they can either be negative or positive. And uh, you just have to be super conscientious of whether the way that you cope serves you or acts as a barrier. And my relationship with alcohol was one that for the entirety of my adult life was a, a casual relationship. I, like many people, I'd have a drink or two after a long day and would knock the rough edges off of that long day by having a couple of drinks and felt like it was a thing that was completely and totally in my control. And when life started to stack a whole host of things on top of each other, whether it was identity or the worry of what this book might do or the way that our working together would show up or you name it, right? The casual relationship became less casual. And I had to really spend some time with my intellectual appreciation of what growth could create in my life, which was my hoped for fulfillment, and how my coping mechanisms would either support my pursuit of growth or would undermine my pursuit of growth. So about a year ago, I, at the time that I get my book edits back, at the time that we're scaling our business, at the time that I'm still trying to figure out how to work well with my wife, my drinking has tipped from being something that was casual to not casual. And in having a drink, 
I had to come to appreciate that alcohol is not a local anesthetic, that you cannot just grab a drink and take care of your anxiety or take care of your imposter syndrome or take care of your fear or whatever your insecurity might be. You also, in grabbing that drink, eliminate the joy. You also, in grabbing that drink, eliminate the possibility of experiencing the benefit of the discomfort that would produce growth if you would afford that growth to exist, if you would allow that discomfort to exist. So for me, I had to ask a question. I made this big leap. I decided to leave Disney for this company. I decided to do this work where I knew it would intentionally trigger my insecurities. It would intentionally put me in places where I could fail, that I was choosing to be in positions where I could fail because of the opportunity to learn and grow from that failure. But if I was drinking, I was muting all of that benefit. I was, you know, I, I've decided to leave this harbor so that I could go out and experience the crashing waves. And here I'm drinking to eliminate the waves. And in eliminating the waves, I was eliminating any of the benefit that those waves would have otherwise created in my life. So I had to make a choice. Do I want to actually experience this growth for the benefit of fulfillment? And when the answer became yes, I decided to declare I'm not going to drink for a year. As it turns out, you are correct. Sunday, we are recording this on Friday, the third day of April. Sunday, two days from now, ends up being a full year of not drinking. And man, it has been such a gift. Uh, One, I made the declaration because I wanted to show myself that I can control how I choose to handle the triggers, the stresses that show themselves in this world. And it's not as though deciding to replace alcohol with something else when I became anxious reduced the number of times that I became anxious. I referenced my having run a thousand miles. I substituted alcohol with running and I've just run a ton. Uh, Because there's still a lot of anxiety and stress and things that I'm trying to work out on an every single day basis. But by picking up shoes instead of a bottle, I'm able to process things in a therapeutic, cathartic kind of way that doesn't have the lingering effect of a hangover, that doesn't mute the way that I'm feeling, that actually brings the way I'm feeling to the surface. So um, I ended up doing it in an unconventional way. I wrote it into a book. I wrote it into a book, declaring it on pages that would inevitably come out. In the book, I said, when this book comes out, I will have not had a drink for 338 days. And sure enough, on March 10th, when it came out, I hadn't had a drink for that long and I still haven't had a drink for that long. And frankly, I don't even, I'm not planning to have a drink because my want to continue to lean on positive coping mechanisms exists as much today as it did a year ago. And If there's, you know, whoever you are, whoever's listening, because here we are right now in the midst of heightened triggers, right? You are more triggered now in an environment where you're having to quarantine at home, where you're having to figure out how to do your work, or your work potentially is threatened in real time by the possibility of furloughs or whatever it might be. This is not the time to lean on alcohol as a coping mechanism because that is not a long term plan that is going to serve you surviving this window of time that we're about to go inside of. I, you know, I would argue, move your body. I would argue, you know, find someone to talk to regularly, whether it's a therapist or a friend, I would argue, you know, do anything or, you know, anything or everything uh, to avoid having, uh, whether it's, you know, drinks or pills or food or whatever that does not serve you becoming the crutch that helps you get through this time, because, um, we will inevitably create habits in this quarantine. It takes 30 days to create a new habit. 
you're going to be sitting in quarantine for longer than 30 days. And if you, in processing anxiety and stress, decide for the next 30 days, it's just going to be 30 days that I'll drink a little more than I ought to because it's going to help knock the rough edges off of this quarantine. When we come out of this, you will have established that alcohol or pills or whatever is the way that you handle stress and stress will still exist when we get out of this. Would you have been able to, or moving forward into the future, would you have been able to, you know, let's, let's say that we're in, you know, Chianti and we're, you know, we're, we're at a winery and we decide to have a glass of wine. Do you, have you learned, have you taught yourself through this process that for you and the way you use it, you're an all or nothing guy. I don't want to sip because that's going to be a slippery slope. Or do you now want to regulate it where you can say, I, you know, if I go out to dinner with some friends and you know, they're opening up a $200 glass of wine, I'd love to have a glass. Like, where do you sit with that now? Yeah, no, I, I think I'm more that I have to be hard and fast about the way that I can responsibly enjoy alcohol when I decide to have a drink again. And for me, that's drinking when I'm by myself is just not a thing because I thought, you know, I'd come home from work. I might get home before my wife or she's, you know, at home, but now is, you know, getting a bath going for one of the kids and I'll have a drink. And, and the reality is I want to set a, a, a boundary around, hey, if I'm going to have a drink, I'm going to have a drink socially. It's going to be with someone else. I don't want to drink by myself. If I'm going to drink, it, it's going to be in celebration. It is not going to be to uh, to medicate or relieve, and I, and so like the 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 example that you give, hey, we're at a at a winery. That is a fantastic time where I could see myself enjoying a wonderful glass of wine, but I will not. If I've had a long day, I am not going to have a glass, even just a single glass, because that to me is where the slippery slope is introduced. I'm not interested in having alcohol or anything that doesn't serve me as the thing that helps me not have to process or deal with the emotion of my day. I want to stay present in that struggle so that I can bring it to the surface, get it out of my unconscious, work through it, process it, and not let it fester. And when I have a drink, I am not actually dealing with the problem. I am complicating the problem by letting it get deeper into my subconscious or kicking the can down the road and not dealing with it at all. You know, it's interesting. I did a, uh, I did a show once with uh, somebody who was sober for 30 years and they said, you know, if you can kind of trace back somebody who, let's say, started drinking at 20 and now they're 40, they're emotionally still 20 because they've, they've medicated themselves th through all of the lessons. Oh, that's good. That they've never grown. And as you were speaking, it, it triggered that memory for me. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. No, no, no. That's good. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to talk to you about, um, we're going to move into, the show is broken up into two parts. One is the work hard part, which is all about your book and creating the book, which we kind of just went through. Um, and then the other side of it is a lot of entrepreneurs um, are super successful. They're making money, but they don't have a lot of fulfillment in their life. And I want to talk a little bit more about uh, fulfillment. One of the things that you and I share is a love for Broncos, 1969 Broncos. Um, what is it about that car that you helps you feel more fulfilled if it does? Well, it had been one of those like unicorn, black swan, whatever you want to call it, kind of uh, on my vision board things for maybe 20 years. I, I grew up uh, with a dad who rode 
trials bikes. He always had some kind of four wheel thing that was happening. And so there was this like part of my childhood wanting it to become a a thing that I might manifest one day and uh, leave it to a 40 year old, you know, midlife moment where I decide, you know what, I am going to get myself that dang 1969 Ford Bronco. I ended up building a Bronco, which if you're listening and you're tempted to build a Bronco, do not build a Bronco. Holy cow. It was, um, now, I mean, this Bronco is the, it's the greatest thing. It's the incredible Hulk as I call it. Uh, and it is, it's got a 302 engine. It is, it is perfect. There's not a 1969 piece on it, but it took two years and way too much money to, uh, to build this Bronco piece by piece. But there is something about, um, especially honestly in the midst of this quarantine, um, I have found myself just grabbing a 15 minute ride on a country road. We live, uh, as much as we say, Austin, Texas, we do not live in Austin. We live about 40 minutes outside of Austin in the middle of nowhere. So Mm. when I get this Bronco out, uh, I can find a dirt road in two seconds and I can drive on a dirt road without seeing someone for 15 minutes. There is something in that that is, again, there's a serenity. I mean, I say serenity, it's the loudest thing truck in the entire universe so there's not much peace but there is something that just feels like a grunt like a like a primal perfect um out in the middle of nothing wilderness uh moment that uh that i love it's it there's peace in it i am i am the only person in my family that drives in that truck i do it it's a it's a thing that is me getting away from kind of everything I throw on some Avicii. I throw on I throw on the weirdest music and roll those windows down and just ride in nature. And I'm here for it. God, that's two Avicis in one day. I just um, did an interview with his um, drug counselor. Can you imagine? No kidding. Yeah, that was the last one. I just I just wow. did. I did I did Perez Hilton and then that one. It was a. It's been a strange morning. What a day. <laughs> yeah. What. <laughs> What a day. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask you some weird questions. Just roll with it. If you could, what do people often get wrong about you? Well, interestingly, because of uh, this persona that I have created, uh, either in the way that I do my coaching or online, the morning show, podcasts, I am an introvert. And I have, uh, I think, to the outside world, very much an extrovert, life of the party, mayor of our live events kind of persona that is uh, a little more persona than it is um, practical, actual me. Yeah, I love that. Um, I was once talking to somebody about, um, I said, you know, I can't really, I don't totally understand the difference between introverts and uh, extroverts. She said, well, I'll give you a simple example. If you go to the bar at the end of the day and you're stressed out and you're hanging out, do you want to put headphones in your ears and just look down and maybe read a book at the, a bar or restaurant where we are? Or do you want to tap the person on the shoulder next to you and have a conversation? Yeah. And I, I said, yeah, headphones in, read a yep. book. She said, Every time. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, got it. She said, you're situationally extroverted. She said, but after three days, you'll be drooling in the corner because it's tapped everything out of you. I said, yes. She goes, you're an introvert. Yeah. I love that. What is a new be- uh, behavior or belief in the last, you fill in the blank, number of months or years that has significantly improved the quality of your life? In other words, since I've done this thing, it's made a giant difference in my life. Well, I, I just, I've only done it a couple of times, but I cannot recommend enough finding 
time to take a break from your every single day life and get into, uh, there's a great book by Ryan Holiday about stillness being the key. Stillness is the key. Uh, I went, I've gone now a couple of times on like a two or three day, no technology, no, no contact with humans kind of, uh, experience where I was just with my thoughts, just with a blank piece of paper, just out in nature and the ability to, um, really be considerate of what I'm thinking about, where I'm going, what I'm you know going to like focus on, what's important, what's not important, has uh, when I've returned, provided so much clarity on what matters and what doesn't, the things that I need to actually focus on and prioritize, and the other things that I can just let go of. Uh, spending time in in that kind of silence, away from the distractions of our everyday. Uh, for me has also let me in the same way that like a therapy might through journaling, uh, let some of my subconscious thoughts come to the surface so that I can address the things that I'm working on. And uh, if you if you don't have a practice right now that lets you disconnect and put pause on your busy life so that you can come back to uh, it after you've got a little bit of clarity, man, I can't recommend it enough. It has been transformational for me. Yeah, he's incredible. Do you have his book, The Daily Stoic? Yeah, I do. It's really, really good stuff yeah, to read. It two, is. two seconds and a total, uh, total shift. Okay, what is the one goal that you thought when I achieve this, everything in my life is going to be amazing. Once I get this, I'm going to be great. And then you got it, and you're like, this is not what I wanted. This, this, this is not doing what I thought it was going to do for me. Uh, well, I'll answer it in a little bit of a weirder way, different way, because it, it, it's it was about title or money. Uh, truly, as I was growing up, certainty was the primary commodity that I thought I was driven toward. And the idea of being able to have predictable outcomes and some degree of certainty and managing expectations, including my own, was a path that I was on for a long, long time. And then the tables I always thought if I could just get invited to, or the title if I could just have, or the amount of money in my bank account if I could just get, um, I got some of those things. And the idea of having uh, certainty became a double-edged sword that started working against me. The One of the lower parts, one of the lower points of my uh, my, my stuck season between 30 and 40, just after I turned 40, uh, was the day that I signed my last contract at the Walt Disney Company. Uh, for years, for years and years, I thought the thing I wanted more than anything was to uh, have this title as president and to have the security of long-term contracts uh, existing so that I wouldn't have to worry. I could uh, reinforce my posture and position as the provider in our household. And um, and I could just like count on uh, that existing. And in the in the, on the day that I that I signed the deal, it was a longer term deal. It was a three plus one four year deal, and uh, and it was just after you know I, when I started my job, Pixar had just been acquired, but then Marvel Studios was acquired and Lucasfilm was acquired, and now the strength of all of this intellectual property made the job, uh, as I mentioned earlier, one that wasn't as hard and not as fulfilling because of the absence of some of it being a challenge. And so the idea that I was committing myself to this long-term deal felt in some strange way, like I was selling out for security at the expense of being fulfilled. And so 
Uh, man, I want to encourage everybody who has ambition to getting to a certain number in your bank account or getting to a certain title, um, find that drive. Um, but I will argue if you can stay anchored to a why that is more connected to impact than it is to dollars, a, a why that's more connected to how you will have legacy than it is to how much money you can put away, you will find fulfillment on a completely different level. You know, um, I've been to uh, a Date with Destiny seminar with uh, with Tony Robbins, and a lot of the languaging that you use sounds like you may have been there. Did you go to a Tony seminar? I didn't go to that one. I went to UPW. UPW. Yeah. UPW, okay. Yeah. Okay, and that's the one where, you, where they... Uh, I think you mentioned in your book, um, whose love did you crave more? Is that where yeah, that came from? That, yeah, okay. that's where it came from. Yeah. Okay. I was, I was getting flashbacks. Okay. Got <laughs> it. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Hawaii. Hawaii. Hawaii is a place that has just become like, uh, a, a retreat, a Sabbath, uh, a thing that, uh, as a family, we look forward to. Uh, I don't know that we've we've ever been able to be there for even close to that length of time, but there's something about that air. You get off the airplane, and the things that seemed to have mattered outside of that thick island air uh, just don't matter as much. Cool. All right, we're going to wrap up with the last part of the show, and that is our rapid-fire round. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind round. Okay. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? I, uh, superpower humor. Uh, I think I can make people laugh even when they don't feel like it. Sometimes, uh, unfortunately for them, it's a defense mechanism when things get serious, but, uh, I, I think I can turn a table or a room quickly when things need a little humor. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? God, what do I wish people would ask me? I don't, the, the thing is the introvert in me doesn't want to be asked anything by <laughs> anybody. <laughs> well, there goes that trigger laugh. Okay, we got it. What's, uh, what's one thing, that's a great answer though. What's one thing that you want to get better at? I, in real time, I am on a pursuit to find a hobby, which may sound crazy, but uh, in, in, in real time, I am recognizing that I want to pursue things that bring me more joy more often. And, uh, in this, in this quarantine season, I am getting the opportunity to ask a better set of questions around what it is that actually, um, I want to do with my spare time and fight for having more spare time. So I want to get more intentional with, creating space for me to pursue something that is exclusively about driving joy in my life. And uh, I don't know what it is yet. So I'm about to go on a little bit of a mission to figure out, like, is yoga for me? I don't think yoga is for me. Is skydiving? I don't think it's skydiving. Fishing? I'm not sure. I've never... like, But I am going to... I'm going to go on a little mission to figure out what it is that brings me joy. Well, it's such an interesting point, and that is precisely why this section of the show is here. You know, as an entrepreneur, it's super easy for us to grind and work and hit goals, et cetera. But, you know, I, I've got this uh, new planner. It's called an Evo, EVO planner. And uh, one, of the, one of the questions that you have to fill out every day is, what are you doing today for fun? And I got to tell you, man, I stand there staring at the wall going, right? I, and it's so bizarre that you know, at 53 years old, I can't figure out what I want to do for fun. So finally, after just getting frustrated, I just tried to start taking a bite out of a bunch of different apples. And what I landed on is surfing. So I literally started taking surfing lessons in my fifties. I love um, it. And it. It's become the new passion. So I love it. Hang in there. Um, 
what is one thing that you own and you probably should throw it out, but you never will? Oh my goodness. I collected baseball cards as a kid and I have held on to so many things sports memorabilia wise that have uh, sentimental value. I mean, most of them are worth nothing now. And even if they are, they're like not worth the five moves they've been through. But I have I have a bunch of baseball cards and jerseys and things like that that are um, that are going to be with me literally until I die, or I convince one of my kids to fall in love with the idea of sports memorabilia as much as I did when I was a kid. I love that. Last two questions: If you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for, so we're going to take everything off the table that's in your book and nothing that you speak about, but it could be on anything that you have a passion for or anything else at all. What would it be? Oh man, I mean, I don't want to recycle it, but I would talk about the rise and fall of the baseball card market because I am, I, I, I just, this is crazy. Sorry, sidetrack for two seconds. In the midst of quarantining, we are trying to find different ways to engage our kids in uh, after dinner family time. And my presentation, we, we, sorry, we asked each of them to come up with a five page PowerPoint presentation on a topic that they have expertise in that no one else has any understanding in. And I described the way that the introduction of eBay and the greed of baseball card manufacturers completely ruined and devalued the baseball card market in 1994. And it's a thing that nobody cares about. But I'll tell you what, for the five pages of my presentation, it was the greatest part of my entire quarantine. See, I love that. That's fascinating to me. I absolutely love that. And you would have a lot in common with Gary Vee. Have you had the chance to meet him yet? I haven't, but I, I, I want to and will. I, I, love, I love what he's doing, though, with the garage sale. I, I mean, I can't imagine how he's handling not being able to garage sale right now. But yes, I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. We're going to change things up. What one question would you like to ask me? Wow. Uh, what at... 50, what'd you say, 54? Three. 53, okay, so 53. What piece of advice would you give to the 23-year-old version of yourself that you now hold at 53? Relax, it's all gonna be fine. Uh, me too, I honestly, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna be fine. You're gonna be Save- fine. Save the heart attack. You're going to be fine. No, that's good. Well, dude, this has been a fun ride. I hope you enjoyed it. I am super, super um, excited that you're here. I can't wait till this is behind us so you can get out there in the world and share share this book with everybody. No shit. It is um, fascinating. Your ability to tell stories, as I said in the beginning, your vulnerability, um, and all of the lessons that I took from it. I mean, I, I get up early in the morning and uh, one of the things I do is I listen to an audible book, audible book while I'm doing my stretches and then the wife and the kid, I have a five-year-old daughter too. She gets up and every morning for about two weeks, I said, I got to tell you what the next thing I just read in this book is. <laughs> so um, you're, you're, you're spreading great stuff out in the world. So I wish you the best uh, with everything to you and your family. Right on. I appreciate it, Rob. Have a great weekend. Have a great quarantine, man. Thanks for doing this work. I appreciate you having me on. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game 
or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 